Well, good evening. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. Book of 1 John, and we are now in chapter 2. 1 John, our sermon text this evening is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But I will read starting in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2, so we get the context. So, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is God's word. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Thus ends reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious, precious passage that we will look at this evening. We thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross for our sins, that we have perfect and full forgiveness of all of our sins, and that he forever puts before you his one-time single sacrifice for us so that we are accepted before you. We pray, Lord, that you will bring us joy through the truth of that good news. We pray that we will receive your word as what it really is, your word to us. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. I remember listening uh, to a sermon or a lecture from Dr. Bonson, uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, the Christian apologist. Um, and something he said really stuck with me because what he said, I'm first in line to be guilty of. And he was talking about how sometimes when Christians are together in a group and they're praying out loud, he said it's almost, it almost wants to make, like, it's humorous to him. He almost laughs, but he probably shouldn't laugh at other Christians. But it makes him want to laugh when he hears Christians pray in such a way that what they're saying, the words they're saying, don't match up at all with their tone of voice and their attitude in their prayer. Like this, where somebody's like, oh, dear God, thank you for giving me eternal life. I'm really thankful for that. You know, it's like, what, what's, what's wrong with that? Where's, where's the joy? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I can be sometimes. Why is that the way that I am? And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. It's one of the purposes of this book is for us to have joy. And yet oftentimes myself, again, first in line, first to raise my hand to be condemned in this way, is that where is my joy? Why don't I have the joy that I ought to have in my Christian life and in my attitude? 
The subject of the sermon this evening, if you get nothing else out of it, I want you to think about it and apply it to yourself and say, I want to get joy out of this because that's the purpose of this. He's writing these things so that we can have joy. And this passage before us this evening is a great cause for joy for all of us. It should refresh us in joy. So we've completed chapter one in First John. We've already seen a number of truths that he's given to us. We've discovered many things. He starts out saying who the true Jesus is. He's truly God and truly man. And how eternal life is only in him. He's given us tests already to see whether we have eternal life. He says if somebody claims to have eternal life but yet walks in darkness, they don't. If someone claims to have eternal life yet denies that they're a sinner, they're not saved. Those who walk in the light, however, that's evidence that they are saved. And a true Christian does not deny his sin, but rather he confesses his sin and receives forgiveness from God. We should understand that one of the reasons that John says these things, that he opens up these things, is he says them out of a shepherding, pastoring love for the church that he's writing to. See, whatever his relationship is to this unknown audience, we don't know who particularly he's writing to, whoever they are, his relationship to them is is very close. He's close with them. As we see in the beginning of chapter 2, he addresses them this way, my little children. In fact, he uses similar phrases seven times, I think, in this book regarding these people. He calls them his children. David Allen Black says about that, that when you, when you see John writing that, that's John stooping down and hugging the audience. You see, John has a lot of hard things to say in this book, a lot of warnings and hard truths and challenging calls to, act, to action for his audience and, and for us. So he, he addresses them with this pastoral care and true love regarding them as a father regards his little children, showing them the way to go. And it's in that spirit that John writes this fatherly shepherding way, especially as he warns them against false teachers, particularly the ones that had infiltrated this church and then had left these early Gnostics that have taught these false things. And he's not okay with that. He's very unhappy that these people have disrupted the church. They have uh, taken away the joy of the church. They have questioned the assurance of the believers there. So he wants to reassure them. He wants to comfort them. As we see later in the book in 1 John 5, 13, he wants to assure them that they have eternal life. That's one of the main purposes of the book. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then in verse 4 of chapter 1, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He wants them to be comforted, assured, and strengthened. So although he has many hard things to say, and he does, Remember that we're regarded as little children and the arms of the author come down around us and give us a hug throughout the difficult sayings. But it's not ultimately John whose arms come around us and give us a hug. It's the ultimate author of the book of 1 John. It's God himself who inspired these words that as he gives us the hard sayings, intersperses it with these kind and comforting words to us. But it's not just regarding us as little children that is the hug, that is the comforting words. It's this whole passage before us that should be a great refreshment and comfort to our souls. So let's go ahead and and get further into the text, looking there at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'll stop there for a moment. 
So we have here, again, another purpose for the writing of this letter, so that you may not sin. And specifically, John is referring to why he's been talking about the things he's been talking about. Walking in darkness versus walking in light. People who say they have no sin versus people who confess it. He's talking about false teachers and their false doctrine who say you can be saved but walk in darkness or you can have fellowship with God but deny that you're a sinner. He's, he's saying, this is, I'm writing these things to you about these false teachers so that you may not sin. Why? How does that relate? See, the false teachers who had infiltrated the church and then left, their doctrines led to sin, right? So he's saying, I'm writing to you about these false doctrines so that you won't sin, you won't follow their ways. Think about that. They're saying, they're saying you can walk in darkness and that's okay. Well, that obviously leads to sin, doesn't, doesn't it? They can say, you're not even sinning because the Gnostics taught what? What you do in the body doesn't matter because it doesn't affect your soul. So, hey, go ahead and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Their doctrines lead to sin. And John's saying, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. Don't follow their false teaching. So he, he has these denunciations for that purpose. And he's concerned about his little children who are being deceived or, or tempted to be deceived by these false teachers. So he, he, the purpose, again, of these initial refutations in 1 John, though those false teachers, is to encourage them to obey God and not to sin because those false teachings led to sin. So what he's saying is true Christians don't desire to sin. They don't, they don't uh, glory in their sin. They confess their sins when they sin against God, as 1 John 1, 9 says. They trust in the forgiveness uh, of their sins that's accomplished by Jesus, as he says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what he's saying here in chapter 2, verse 1, is that our goal as Christians is not to sin. We don't want to sin. We don't love to rebel against God. We want to obey him. In fact, as we've seen where he says we walk in the light, and as we will see next time we open First John together, one of the tests that we're saved is if we keep God's commandments. It's one of the evidences that we'll see next time. So the issue here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 is that the Christian desires not to sin and does not live a habitually sinful lifestyle, as we'll see next time. But what we're going to examine tonight in particular is this. But we do sin as Christians. We don't love it. We don't desire it. We don't live in it habitually. But we do sin still as Christians. How does that affect our relationship to God? Are we still forgiven for our sins when we sin as true Christians? Does God still love us when we sin as true Christians? That's the issue that we're looking at tonight that he addresses here in verses 1 and 2. So he recognizes Christians have sins to confess, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. And he's saying here, we do sin as Christians, not as a habitual lifestyle, but as something that we still struggle with as we put to death the flesh. But he's asking and answering, what is our relationship to God when we sin? How, how is it that, uh, how are we affected? How does God's view of us, uh, how is God's view of us affected when we sin? Does he love us? Does he forgive us? So let's continue on in the passage and, and see how he deals with that question. She says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So although the Christian's goal is not to sin, 
He does, still. Now, some have made too much of John's use of the word if here. There it says, and if anyone sins, as if it's just a hypothetical possibility that it might not happen, but maybe it will. Now, Christian, you're going to sin. You know that. You sin every day, don't you? Making too much of the word if, that's, that's what sinless perfectionists do. Well, it's maybe, maybe you will, maybe you, you won't. No, you will. You will sin. It's something that we still will struggle with all the days of our life. So what he's doing here, though, when he says if, why does he employ the word if? Is that he's been using this if throughout chapter 1 as well. But it doesn't mean it's a pure hypothetical. For example, in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins. That's something that you can or you maybe will do or maybe not do. No, it's something that the true Christian does. They confess their sins. What he's saying is, if this is the scenario, then this is the reality. If you're a person who confesses their sins before God, then you are forgiven of your sins. And the same thing is here, is that if you're in the scenario where you have sinned, then here's the reality of that, of your status before God. What he's saying is, when you sin, you still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. So in the scenario where you're the one who sinned, you still have an advocate. So it's not a maybe you'll sin, maybe you won't sin situation. It's whenever you sin, here's the reality of the situation. Your relationship to God is this. You have an advocate. So when he says, if, and if anyone sins, that's what he means by that. So if someone's truly saved and they sin, here's the reality. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now that term advocate there, the term advocate, in Greek is parakletos, which sometimes is transliterated into English as paraclete. You may be familiar with that. Um, this word is only used in John's writings. He uses it in the Gospel of John with reference to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus uses it. John 14, 16, for example, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And that's the word parakletos, helper. Here translated advocate here in 1 John, that he may be with you forever. So that same word used of the Holy Spirit by Jesus and John, the Gospel of John, is now here used of Jesus. And notice how Jesus even said it himself. He will send you another helper, another paraclete. Who's the first paraclete? Jesus himself. He'll send, when Jesus ascends back into heaven, he'll send another, the Holy Spirit, another helper, another paraclete. So the term paraclete refers to one who may be called upon to provide help or assistance. That's why it's translated helper. But it also can have a more narrow definition, which refers to call to one's aid in a court of justice or a legal assistant or an advocate. And it's in that sense that John uses it here in 1 John. Jesus is our advocate in court. He's our legal advocate, our defense attorney. He comes alongside of us in court to help us. Now, what court are we talking about? Not the court in the courthouse here, but the heavenly court before God the Father. As he says, he is our advocate to the Father, our defense attorney to the Father. So the Father is the judge. Jesus is our defense attorney. See, the Father will either justify or condemn us. He either finds us guilty or he'll find us righteous. And Jesus is there standing up in our defense before God the Father. So Jesus being our advocate, his advocacy is essentially the same idea as his intercession for us, as it's spoken of elsewhere. For example, in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, we have a contrast between the Old Testament priest 
and Jesus as our high priest. And it says this, the former priests, the Old Testament priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing as priests. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And here's the key part. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's the interceder, the one who goes between us and the Father. The one who makes peace between us and the Father. We can draw near forever to God the Father because Jesus is the intercessor. He goes between. He makes peace between us and the Father. He's always there advocating for us on our behalf to the Father. The same idea. So we see Jesus is our intercessor. He's our advocate to God. And we have here in 1 John 2 also the importance of his character quality. Notice how that's emphasized. He's our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. See, if you're in court, we don't have someone advocating for us who's a criminal like us. That wouldn't do us very good, very much good, would it? We don't have a sinner advocating for us trying to downplay our sins, saying, well, it's really no big deal, right? We already been told in 1 John that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Do you really think he would listen to someone who's trying to make excuses for you? who's trying to downplay sin? But you listen to an unrighteous advocate, one who makes excuses? You see, if, if God listened to unrighteous advocates, then we could just advocate for ourselves, make excuses, and he could accept us based on our excuses. He does not do that. He's righteous. He is light. He's holy. Such an attitude of denying our sin has already been condemned in 1 John anyway, right? We deny our sins, we're self-deceived. So Jesus, in other words, is not like a human defense attorney. He doesn't, he doesn't deny our sins or he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't plead our innocence based upon what we've done. In fact, he acknowledges that we're sinners. He doesn't lie and say that we haven't sinned. He doesn't make God out to be a liar who says that we sin. He stands up in the courtroom and says, yes, they, they've sinned. He says that because it's true. Because he's our righteous advocate. But there's a whole lot more to that than what he says as well. This leads us to the next part. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So thankfully, not only does Jesus acknowledge that we're sinners, but he also has perfect grounds for us to receive mercy. He has perfect grounds. He's the propitiation for our sins. That's the essential word here. Propitiation means that God's wrath is turned away from us because it's been put on Jesus on the cross. It's the turning away of God's wrath away from us onto him. Instead of me being punished for my sins, he's being punished for my sins on my behalf. So so the idea here is that Jesus turns away the wrath of God from you and takes it upon himself. In other words, he's satisfying justice, the justice of God, instead of us facing that justice in hell. Now, the word propitiation has fallen on hard times um, for a number of reasons. One, it's a word that's not really used outside of theology very much. It's an old word. Most people don't know what it means. So we need to know what it means. It's an important word. But secondly, there are people, commentators, theologians, who question whether the Greek word behind this really should be translated propitiation. Right? This word halasmos or halasterion. 
they question, well, really should, is that a really a, an appropriate word to use when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross? For example, one uh, Greek lexicon or, or dictionary uh, says this about the Greek word here. It says, though some traditional translations render hilasterion as propitiation, this involves a wrong interpretation of the term in question. Propitiation is essentially a process by which one does a favor to a person in order to make him or her favorably, favorably disposed. But in the New Testament, God is never the object of propitiation since he is already on the side of the people. Helasmos and hilasterion denote the means of forgiveness and not propitiation. So notice the argument here. The argument here is not that the word doesn't mean propitiation. It's that they have an allergy to it theologically. I don't like that. It doesn't, it doesn't sound right. They think that propitiation is incompatible with God loving his people. They're saying, well, he's already on the side of his people. There's no need for propitiation. But they're not incompatible. In fact, it's the love of God that motivates him sending Jesus to be the propitiation. Look at 1 John 4.10. He uses the same word here. It's very important. We'll get here later, obviously, but we've got to look at it now. 1 John 4.10. Notice this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Are the incompatible thoughts that God loves his elect people and then sends his son to satisfy his wrath against them? Not at all. They go very well together, actually. See, some commentators even use this verse, verse John 410, to argue against propitiation. They'll say, they'll say, look, the love of God sent Jesus into, his, into the world, not the wrath of God. So the problem with these arguments is that they don't understand the fact that the father so loved his people that he sent his son into the world in order to satisfy his wrath against their sins. He took the wrath of God in his people's place because God the Father loved them so much. He wanted to have reconciliation with the people that he sent his only son to make that happen. But the only way that can happen is if justice is dealt out on his son rather than his people that he wants reconciliation with. So the motivation here is love. It's not at all at odds. Propitiation and the love of God go hand in hand. Because the cross of Christ is the meeting place of those two things. The love of God and the wrath of God meet there. Because the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus because he loves his people so much that he wants to save them from their punishment. It's the only way for sinners to be reconciled to the holy God, Christ taking that wrath. And that is the greatest demonstration of his love. So when we have here that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that's appropriate. And that's biblical. That's how we should understand this. That he's taking the penalty in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. Now, I want you to notice something really neat about this. What it says is that he is the propitiation for our sins. See, in this, in this text, he's not said to be the one who, who offers something that propitiates. But he, he is said here in this text to be the thing itself that propitiates the wrath of God. That the wrath was actually put on Jesus himself, that he's the one who took it. He is the propitiation, not the propitiator in this particular verse. So because, because of Jesus, the father no longer has a righteous wrath against his people because that wrath was placed on Jesus. He's the propitiation. But that being said, we're also told in scripture that he is the one who offered up that sacrifice. For example, in Hebrews 7, verse 27 and, or 26 and 27, it says, 
For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, the Old Testament ones, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And here it is. Because he did once for all when he offered up himself. So he, he is the priest, the high priest, and the sacrifice. He offers up the sacrifice, and it's himself. He is the propitiation and the one who offers up the propitiation. The high priest and the sacrifice. The propitiator and the propitiation itself. And notice Hebrews 7 and 1 John 2 both emphasize the righteousness of Jesus. Hebrews says he's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. John says he's Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only high priest, the only advocate whom the Father would accept to act on our behalf. So, having laid out these definitions and the thrust of the passage, what's it mean that Jesus is the advocate and all of these things, let's go ahead and set up the court scene. Okay, we have our legal advocate. We have our defense attorney. Here's the scenario. You're the true Christian. You're the truly saved person. But you're brought before God because you've sinned. The father's the judge. Jesus is your advocate, the defense attorney. But who's your accuser? Who's accusing you before God the father, the judge? It's the enemy, the adversary, the accuser of the brothers, Satan. Remember Revelation 12.10? Then I heard the loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them, the brothers, before our God day and night. You hear that? Satan, his, his gig, his thing is, he's accusing us before God the Father day and night. That's what he does. What's that mean? He is bringing our sins before God the Father and trying to persuade him to condemn us because of them. He's accusing us of them. Satan tries to get God to hold our sins against us, his people, the brothers. We see this in a scene in Zechariah, uh, chapter three, verse one. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. See that? There he is doing what he does, accusing the brothers. He's bringing up everything he can think of, all the sins Everything that you've done today or this week, you know, he doesn't have to make stuff up because it's true. He can bring things that are, you've actually done, real sins. He doesn't have to lie this time about what you did. He has plenty to work with. And he can say to God, Satan can say to the Father, look at your people, your holy people. Look at these people. They're pathetic. And you know what they deserve, God. You know what they deserve. They deserve death. You should. You'd be right and righteous to cast them into hell right now. Look what they did again. It's what they deserve, isn't it? It's righteous for you to do this. And what could you say in that courtroom? You can't deny it. I mean, you did it. You sinned, don't you? You know that. You can't appeal to what you have done as your defense. You can't have your works to advocate for you. They can't be your legal defense to come along with you in court and say, but look at all the good I've done. You haven't. There's no advocacy there. Nothing you can say could take away your guilt. So what happens? 
What happens in this scenario where you are before God the Father, who's the judge, and Satan's there giving all these accusations that are true, saying, look at what he did. He did this, 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 and this. But what happens when you have Jesus there as your advocate, as your defense attorney? We get the rest of the story in Zechariah chapter 3. So then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Notice what the Lord says. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, as in Joshua the high priest, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to me, he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Notice in the scenario, what do we have that Satan says? Nothing. He doesn't get a word out in the scenario because the Lord shuts his mouth. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You're wasting your time. This is a fool's errand. In comes Jesus, our advocate, our defense attorney, telling Satan to shut his mouth. But notice, Jesus isn't like slimy human lawyers, because he tells the truth, right? Jesus doesn't deny that you've sinned. He doesn't plead that you were temporarily insane for your entire life. He says, you've sinned. And he turns to his father and says, but I have paid their debt. Father, Forgive them because I've taken the penalty for them. And the father just smiles and says, yes, son, just as we planned, just as we agreed. It was for this purpose that I sent you into the world. And so it is. Their sins are forgiven both now and for all time. See, Jesus is always and forever holding up his own sacrifice on the cross to the father as the grounds for your forgiveness. He's always holding up to the Father that propitiation for his people. And the Father always gladly accepts that. Christ is always standing as that advocate for his people. And as Steve Lawson said about this, Jesus has never lost a case. And he never will. The Father and the Son are always in full agreement. As he says, we just read 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son Why? To be a propitiation for our sins. The Father wanted this, and so did the Son. So did the Holy Spirit, for that matter. God loved his people. He loved you and desired reconciliation with you so much that he would send Jesus to accomplish this. There's no disunity between the Father and the Son, as if the Father begrudgingly forgives while the Son tries to persuade him to. They're in full agreement. It was always the plan, always the agreement between the two of them. So the Father gladly accepts the propitiation of the Son. Gladly. Look at that next phrase then. In uh, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So what we've seen is that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's always advocating for us. But the question is, what are we supposed to make of this phrase? Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. How do we understand that? Well, let's start first with what it cannot mean. What it cannot mean. This cannot mean 
universalism. That is the idea that every individual who's ever lived is saved. So this does not mean that Jesus actually is the propitiation. That means he's taking the wrath away for every individual who's ever lived. A, a, a biblical principle, or a, a principle of biblical interpretation, rather, is very relevant here. That you take the clearer passages in order to understand the less clear. So we know very plainly from Scripture that not all people are saved, and that the wrath of God does abide on some people. For example, Revelation 21.8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, not Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, etc.? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are not saved people. There are people who uh, are not saved. So this passage here cannot mean that every individual on the planet has been saved by the death of Jesus. It cannot mean that he's propitiated the wrath of God for every person. Because God still has wrath against some sinners because Jesus has not taken the wrath for them. Now, notice what this also means then by implication is that Jesus did not take the wrath of God for every individual who's ever lived on the face of the planet. He has not, in other words, died for everybody, but only for the sins of the elect. And he's actually died for their sins and actually propitiated the wrath of God for his people's sins, but not for everybody on the face of the planet. Because if that was the case, then everybody would be saved. There would be no wrath abiding on them. Jesus died only for the elect, for the sheep, not the goats, for his bride only. So then, if it doesn't mean every individual on the planet, if it can't mean that because that would lead to universalism, which is incompatible with the rest of Scripture, then what, is, what does it mean? Well, the answer lies with understanding what he means by the word our and the word world. So he says, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's start with world. What does he mean when he says world? Well, to understand this, it's important we get this. The word world doesn't always mean every individual on the face of the planet. I already said that, but the word doesn't have any necessary, uh, it doesn't necessitate that it means everybody on the face of the planet. In fact, there are very clear places where it does not mean that, where it means a particular group of people in the world. Um, for example, Jesus himself makes a distinction between the world and those whom the Father had given him out of the world. And John 17, in his prayer to the Father, who he's interceding for on behalf of his people, he says this, I have manifested your name, the Father's name, to men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent, sent me. Hear this part. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the word world there cannot mean every individual. He says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me out of the world. Right? So the word world does not mean every individual person. He makes a distinction. Now, Keeping that in mind, what does the word our refer to? Well, he says not for ours only. That includes John, right? And also who? The little children that he just addressed in verse one, my little children. That is himself and the people that he's writing to. 
So what he's saying is, is this. Jesus is the propitiation, the advocate, not only for us, you who I'm talking to and myself, but also for all God's people over all the face of the world. Jesus didn't die just for John and his little children. He died for people all over the place. For example, in Revelation 5, 8, and 9, we have a really awesome and clear uh, uh, example of this. It says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, Jesus, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, and there are prayer, which are prayers for the saints, prayers of the saints, rather. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals. Now hear this, hear this. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You hear that? To Jesus to say, you were slain and you purchased with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is, you have died for people all over the world. Jesus purchased blood with his blood, people from all over the world. So what John is saying is not that Jesus is the propitiation for every individual who's ever lived on the face of the planet. But he's saying he has died and is the advocate, not just for a group of elites right here, me and you. He died for people all over the world. He has a body that extends to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that's what John is getting at there. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So, what's the main point here? What are we supposed to get from this and what are we supposed to do with it? When we, as true Christians, if we're true Christians, when, when we sin, we can be tempted to think wrongly about it. We can think that perhaps because we've sinned, God doesn't love us anymore. Or that's too much, he doesn't forgive us anymore. And if we think that way, our joy will be gone. But John wants to reassure us. He says, when we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He advocates for us. And no matter what Satan accuses you of before God, God never listens to him. Because Jesus, your best friend, your defense attorney who died for you, stands up in defense against Satan's accusations. And he never loses the case, right? The father always sides with Christ because it's the father who sent the son into the world in the first place for that very purpose, that you would be saved forever. Satan's accusations are honestly a waste of his time. They are a waste of his time because Jesus never loses. The blood of Jesus continually cries out to the Father, mercy, mercy. And the Father is always and will always be satisfied with, us, with the Son's sacrifice. So, if you are truly saved, then you should know that when you sin, that God still forgives you. And that God still loves you. You're still forgiven. Now, some may object to this teaching and say that this will lead people to sin. But this truth here is held together with the truth that John writes these things to you so that you may not sin, as he says in verse 1. The forgiveness of God does not lead us into sin, but rather it leads us into obedience, actually. And that is going to be the subject of the next time we open First John together. So let's pray. Our Father, we, we do thank you for sending your Son into the world. We thank you that he, once and for all, took the penalty in our place. And he took your wrath in our place because you loved us so much so we could be reconciled to you. 
And we thank you that no matter what Satan or anybody else says, our sins will never be counted against us. Because Jesus is our advocate. He stands up and holds up to you his perfect sacrifice, which you are pleased with. We pray that you will grant us a renewed joy, a greater joy because of that wonderful truth. We have nothing to fear from you because all our sins will never be counted against us. You will remember our sins against us no more. We praise you. We thank you. For Christ's sake. Amen.